0: Welcome to the Religious Studies Project. Good morning, good day, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, whatever time it is, we're happy to have you here. My name is Dave McConaughey, and today I'm joined by
1: Brie Fallon. How are you going, Dave?
0: I'm going quite well. It's so Australian to ask how am I going, Sorry. Ça va bien? <laughs>
1: it's very we are,
0: it is a little Aussie and I like it. I like I think I'm gonna I'm gonna say it more now it's uh it's it's going pretty well it's early for me and late for you and so both of us are are just doing what we can to make the podcast happen um what do we have uh this week that we're about to listen to
1: uh this week we have a wonderful podcast by the ever prolific sydney castillo and he interviewed yulo volk about narrating belief vernacular religion in india take it away
2: And now we are back with the Release Tartus Project podcast. It's now the EASR conference 2019 2018 in Tartu, Estonia is officially over. But we still are, because we like to work a lot and hard, we are still doing podcast interviews. And now I'm happy to have here Ulu Volk from the University of Tartu here with me in the podcast welcome professor walk to the research project
3: well thank you and and welcome to the department of Estonian comparative folklore we are sitting sitting here in this in this library and, and this folkloristics of religion this approach uh, is one uh, that we are introducing here at the university of tartu and perhaps we will talk about about this as, as well what what makes it different uh, from other approaches that uh, we heard so many examples so many possible well methodologies and mm-hmm. and conceptual uh, tools that we discussed during the conference.
2: Exactly. It's uh, it's very stimulating to be in a room like this, because we feel like, still, we are in an academic ambient context, so we can ask properly the questions related to this. But first, I would like to do a brief introduction of Professor Wong. Dr. Olo Wong is a professor of Estonian and Comparative Folklore at the University of Tartu. His publications include The Black Gentleman, Manifestations of the Devil in Estonian Folk Religion, and two edited volumes vernacular religion in everyday life, and storied and supernatural places. His recent research has focused on belief, narratives, place lore, folklore in the social context and vernacular Hinduism. So, uh, I will just dive right in with the questions, and I would like to ask this very uh, old question to try to situate uh, our listeners a little bit. How can we understand folk religion and its relationship with the supernatural?
3: Uh, well, you used the concept of folk religion, and uh, perhaps we will start with, with this. Um, it used to be a traditional way of talking about, well, folk beliefs as a kind of survival, and folk religion, it appeared as uh, some kind of set of old, old beliefs and, uh, and practices that is in opposition to the institutionalized religion like, like Christianity, and that's definitely not the way how we understand it, it today. And the shift has been away, actually, from folk religion as a, some kind of topic or or some kind of system of, of beliefs uh, towards methodology, mm-hmm. towards theory and and approaches. Uh, folk religion it offers one one way to to view religious phenomena as, a, as cultural phenomena. And if we talk about folk religion, we we talk more about the, the community, what is what is shared oh. between the the people and includes uh, well shared forms of expressions that we we call genres but then there is another approach uh, and that's what we call vernacular religion it is seeing religion through this uh, lens of vernacularity and uh, this concept uh, well was introduced by leonard primiano an, an american folklorist and well folklorists have been talking about the vernacular culture in, in many connections well like you take Henry Glassie or or Richard Richard Bauman, but uh, what makes vernacular approach different from studying well folk religion is that it's more focused on individuality on on subject mm-hmm. and on creativity. Mm-hmm. Well, folk, as as you can understand, it talks about uh, a group of group of people. Mm-hmm. And something that is shared, but vernacularity is more about, uh, it, it shows this dynamics of, of religion on, an individual level. And it also includes uh, this, uh, ambiguous relationship with institutionalized uh, forms and with, uh, with power, with, with authority. So the two are not, uh, synonyms. That's, uh, okay. That's 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 something. Very good this, yeah. that's, that's something uh, it's, it's a common mistake. I, I know my colleague Leonard Primiano. He uh, often is quite disappointed when he sees that uh, his concept of vernacular religion was, has been used just to replace the old-fashioned word word folk. It is. It's not. I think that both of them are useful, but uh, it's good to 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 see them as as two closely connected but still different approaches. Mm-hmm. Now to the the question of uh, the supernatural. Mm-hmm. And of course, we know it's a, originally, it's a kind of theological or philosophical term. And, and there is also discussion that perhaps we should not use it at all because it's a kind of Western concept. Mm-hmm. And there are so many cultures in the world that uh, don't uh, use this. It's a kind of well, intellectual colonialism or something like, like this. But uh, when you look at the situation, well, in, in Europe and also in many, many countries, the, the term has been turned into a, Vernacular concept has become an emic term with a huge field of field of meanings, and I find this these concepts quite uh, quite helpful. Sometimes uh, words, if they become very technical, very narrow terms, they are not so useful to to make sense of phenomena like like religion or or culture, because the semantic field is so so broad. Mm-hmm. But as, as as we who People who, who work from this perspective of folkloristics of, of religion, mm. we, we mainly work with textual material. So our focus is connected to discourse, to verbal expressions, right. different kinds of, of genres. And we see also the supernatural as a, a, a function, as an expressive mode of certain certain genres. Mm. And this is related to the enchantment of the of uh, the world we we see that uh, uh, the world uh, is uh, composed of many different uh, outlooks possibilities to to understand this and and this are connected to to the modes of of expression
2: mm-hmm.
3: and in folklore we talk a lot, a lot about genres right. that these uh, genres are connected with with tradition and uh, they they offer different perspectives, different outlooks on the on the world, and that's a kind of a Bahtinian mm-hmm. approach. Batin spoke, he wrote about the speech genres, so right. so that's very close to to what we are we are doing.
2: This is a very good start to try to do something like make a differentiation between concepts. Because oftentimes, as you said, they like uh, either are used as synonyms or it's uh, overlap mm-hmm. one with the other. So now that we have that clear, now in your presentation or our presentation of the ASR, you touched one of those uh, topics that was the difference between truth and belief. So now I would like to ask, truth and belief are categories constantly in dispute in study of religion. How can we develop a useful approach to study them?
3: Yeah, well, that's a big question. Uh, we know that in in Western epistemology, what is uh, how how knowledge is is generally defined or understood. It is justified through through belief. Is, well, the, the question is uh, how the justification works. or what what makes uh, some arguments uh, valid and uh, and the others not not valid? Uh, but exactly, I think that uh, these two concepts are are not. Not enough it's it's much better to have more words like one of the the keynote lectures that was given by by Lotte tarka professor of folklore studies from from helsinki he spoke a lot about imagination and now we have well truth belief imagination and definitely knowledge and uh, i would like to, to refer to to the work of, of one um, philosopher paul hoeningen hune who was a um, Written about how knowledge is produced in in the sciences,
2: mm-hmm.
3: and he has shown that uh, what makes scientific knowledge uh, different is not its so much its uh, content compared with everyday knowledge, but its systematicity. Scientific knowledge is systematic,
2: right.
3: but uh, what we can call vernacular
2: mm-hmm.
3: knowledge. It is connected to, to belief and, and truth. It is more, more disordered, more, more loose. Mm-hmm. It, is, it is open. It's also semantically open. And of course it's connected with, with different uh, forms of, of expression.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: As uh, scientists or scholars with religion, we are used to give lectures or we write articles or right. we write monographs and there are certain rules about genres. Mm-hmm. But if I talk with, with you just as a person to the person and I, I would like to share you, for example, some some ghost narratives mm-hmm. from, from Tartu or some people who have had some trouble with with aliens or mm-hmm. the the UFOs, it would be another very informal mm-hmm. form of communication and, and form of, of genre. And it's interesting how these arguments of belief are made in these these genres they, they're different from the scientific argumentation mm-hmm. that is systematic that uh, well uh, relies to the previous research that is uh, connected to the quantitative approach very very often mm-hmm. but for example i have to convince you that uh, the neighboring house here the, the restaurant werner the cafe werner it's really a haunted house mm-hmm. Well, my my daughter used to work there as as a waitress years ago, and and she she told me there was uh, this tradition of storytelling among the young waitresses that uh, the house was haunted, that they heard oh. some footsteps and some lights, and it was a bit scary mm-hmm. to be the last person in the in the building. And it was very interesting for me to see this incipient tradition, this right? how how young people work together in a old house, and how this tradition is is emerging. Right. And now, how, how to conceptualize uh, this? Is it, uh, well, it's uh, a belief narrative because, of course, we have a lot of questions and uh, in our rational world, we, we are generally uh, skeptical and, uh, and, uh, but this all belongs to, to this uh, genre that we call memories or, mm-hmm. or legends, also ex- expressing doubt and then disbelief and expressing disagreements. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, the concept of belief is useful because it, uh, it exactly it uh, it doesn't uh, fix the the meaning. It expresses a kind of a modality towards the ways how we how we see the the world, how we how we discuss it, and, and truth. Of course, it's a it's a big word, and uh, I think it's not very very common to, to talk about uh, this in, in vernacular, right, this in oral oral communication, it, it's a more question about the, about the goal of, mm-hmm. of scholarship.
2: exactly.
3: And it's also a religious concept, because all, all religions are somehow, they are truthful, they, they are connected yeah. with, the, with okay. this I notion. Of truth
2: sorry. I think a bit for a better situation, all of these concepts we will dive more into your research. Okay. And this is about the next question that I want to like try to orientate. In your EASR presentation, you presented well you presented no ethnography data about the Mayang of North India under everyday understanding of supernatural practices. How does this case give insight on the different ways people relate to belief and facts of experience? Mm-hmm.
3: Well, I've been visiting some places in northeast India in in Assam for many years, and one of them is this uh, famous uh, cluster of villages known as as Mayonga. It's famous uh, for magical knowledge, magical practices, Mm -hmm. uh, Tantra Mantra. And uh, I have discovered uh, that there are many Begis magicians. There are perhaps around 100 or nearly 100 semi professional professional magicians who specialise in who specialize in snake bites and, oh. and who is dealing with exorcism and, and who is more skilled in divination and etc. And there is also a very lively storytelling uh, tradition among them and about these badges. These a lot of stories are projected into the past. They talk, for example, about human-animal transformations. The tigers were very active in this region. Now there is no jungle or very little jungle is left. The tigers are, are gone. And there were these classical stories about magical flights and fights between the, the beaches, the, the magician, magical fights mm-hmm. and also murders by black magic, all kind of tricks that were made with the, uh, with the visitors. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to see how the story world, how it, uh, functions, how it empowers also the, the magical practices. It somehow builds up this aura of the, of the place, uh, this knowledge of a place as a, as a special place. Otherwise, if you look at just an ordinary Assamese village, there is nothing really that makes it unique or, or distinct. But this, this shows how common storytelling, how it, it works to, to enchant a, right. a place and, and also authorize, uh, give, give power to the, to the people who Right. To practice, to carry on the, the traditions there.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes. Speaking about this uh, re enchantment, you spoke about this as well, like there are, and there are mechanisms of enchantment. And um, like in this case of this village, could you speak a little bit more mm-hmm. about that?
3: Mm-hmm. Well, in this village, uh, what has been quite surprising for for me is to see how lively is then tradition of mantras. Mm-hmm. It's in two ways there are magical manuscripts, mantra putis and uh, often they are kept in the in the families uh, and they give also a kind of authority to, to the pages. They are not always using them reciting them but uh, it's a source of a magical, Power. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, sometimes they are considered dangerous. So, if uh, nobody continues the tradition, they are they are burned on the on the on the on the pyre, or, or they are thrown into um, into a river because there is this idea that uh, the mantras are connected with certain deities, goddesses, mm-hmm. and they, they need worship. They need sacrifice. For example, if you don't do this, then they turn against mm-hmm. you. It is so. It, so uh, there are these uh, manuscripts uh, certain traditions connected to them but uh, but there is a lot of knowledge that is transmitted orally
2: yeah.
3: and many mantras are, are also they are they are born born today I uh, have discovered how how the, the Begis, uh they also, they, they can revive a, a tradition or start reading a manuscript a mantras that uh, has been totally forgotten. They say they don't understand the language. It's not Sanskrit. It's not Hindi, mm-hmm. but they, they start uh, reading it uh, somehow and, uh, and it starts to, to work. So, so this possibility that uh, tradition can be revived. Mm-hmm. Also, the tradition that uh, that is there in the in the past, for example, the, the, the story world or the, the knowledge that was there about human animal transformations, people, people carry this this on, mm-hmm. and there is a, also a belief that uh, it's not not gone. It is possible to, to make it alive again if if necessary. So again, we we see this relationship between practices and and story world and and belief and a sense of a place that, that keeps attracting hundreds and thousands of people who consult mm-hmm. them. They come, come from far away, from big, big cities. Mm-hmm. Also educated people, of course, and, uh, and politicians. There were mm-hmm. elections in India now, now recent. Oh, okay. So to, to use this magical knowledge uh, oh. to support uh, running for the, for the parliament, uh, this uh, this is not an uncommon. Maybe it's not so, so public. Yeah. So this difference between public and in private cultures is also there in India
2: mm-hmm. sure one of the things that I remember from the presentation is that uh, also the approach that you take on religion is individuality mm-hmm. and you have many cubignettes uh, of different magicians that were describing process of how to proceed with a particular ritual or how to make an a, like, en- enchanting of a charm or to achieve this human-animal transformation to the tiger. Mm-hmm. It was very, very, uh, I think, uh, Sujelius, in that sense that you were focusing on them. You speak a little bit more about mm-hmm. those cases.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, no, that's this vernacular dimension in religion, that we are not working with some old, old stuff, with some old, old stories, or just working with people. Mm-hmm. And the people have the life stories, they have the characters, they, they have the specializations. And I've been working with a with a few uh, bees uh, most of them are, are men whose uh, life stories are are quite uh, different also whose, whose status in the in the village is different some of them have been very very poor and, and some more more well-to-do most of them belong to neo vaishnava Mm -hmm. tradition, that's also an interesting contradiction, because in neo Vaishnava tradition, you're not uh, supposed to to worship the the goddess or Mm -hmm. to be involved in in tantra. It's it's more a bhakti movement about about Krishna and certain Mm -hmm. forms of public public worship, but how how the same people can be carriers of alternative, different Mm -hmm. traditions, and how they, they shift from from, from I, I would not say it's shifting between identities, uh, individual identities, but it's shifting between with different forms of, of knowledge or different forms of, of religious mm-hmm. culture. So some of them have been raising assistant spirits for example, working with, with them. There's a lively storytelling tradition about their mothers have never never tried this, but of course they know the other beige other magicians who who used the, the help of assistant. Mm -hmm. spirits and there are local Assamese and there are Bengali people who have come in who who carry a different kind of magical tradition Mm -hmm. so to look at this diversity and to see it on the individual level it's very very interesting and uh, here is the the, the space or this dimension in, in religion that I think we need to, to work work more. It is these ethnographic mm-hmm. methods, and, and I know that you are an anthropologist, you are a field worker. I, mm-hmm. I think that's the, what makes our work really fascinating.
2: Definitely. To see the outlook of people as it is and mm-hmm. in its own terms, I think it's a, mm-hmm. there's a lot of value for scholarship on that. I think we're going to move to the last question that we have here. And it's kind of hard like to understand this dimension of uh, like more n- nuanced out of, mm-hmm. of having non not contradiction but it's just things that cohabit in the same place at the same time how does this liminal epistemological uncertainty proves useful for comprehending these phenomena because mm-hmm. you spoke about this mm-hmm.
3: yeah. Yeah, well, there are these uh, two concepts. Uh, what I mean by epistemological uncertainty is that uh, things are not fixed in storytelling, that uh, also the, the belief narrative, it's, it's quite a flexible and open, open concept. There is a discussion about the supernatural, what is, what is possible, what is not often things are projected into the, into the past. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, there is this uh, question, it is how to relate to the stories, to Take it seriously or or not, and that's one of the basic questions in cognition. It's about the fact uh, decision making between fact and fictionality. What is what is true and what is what is not. And of course, there are a lot of humorous modalities, and uh, and uh, not all belief narratives are, are are taken seriously even when they're transmitted. But they in other situation they might start to start to work to to influence the behaviour to influence practices of, of people. And uh, now the concept of, of liminality, of course, we know it has been taken over from the ritual uh, studies mm-hmm. and it's been applied in so many, so many ways. We can also talk about the, the liminality between the story world and social mm-hmm. reality, how experience is turned into into a story and how the, the things that we know from the, the shared stories uh, can be perceived or they can become a psychological uh, reality for some people who who carry the, the tradition it's a kind of liminal world or or we can talk about uh, the temporal liminality mm-hmm. between the, the past uh, well in the case of mayong the, the time of great magicians and and today when the, the magic is, is reduced but uh, the contemporary magician they are like uh, mediums or mediators they can retrieve this knowledge from the, from the past. Mm-hmm. And the status is also kind of liminal. Is they, they, they know something that is, that is secret, but they, they bring it uh, to, to work in the, in the social, social world. Mm-hmm. So these areas where, where things uh, meet and then mix and, and interact, I think these are very, very interesting. truth a lot of what the work can be done. Yes. There. With these yeah, concept
2: definitely. Yeah. Uh, I remember this that you mentioned about uh, even themselves were finding that if something could be effective, maybe as maybe maybe not.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: I think that uh, there lies some some usefulness to try to address vernacular religion, you know, like what people think in everyday mm-hmm. life mm-hmm. to understand. But do you have any comments on that? But this maybe maybe not how we can understand mm-hmm. it for. And what is the usefulness for
3: the study of religion in general? Mm-hmm. So that's also a, a question about the epistemology. What what we can we can do? And as scholars, of course, uh, these are big questions that uh, that we we ask how to to see the the boundaries between world of fiction and uh, and world of facts and and reality. Mm. But also people who carry these uh, beliefs and, and ideas. Uh, they have similar kind of reflections we can talk about vernacular theorizing
2: mm-hmm.
3: and uh, things are very much mm-hmm. left left open
2: mm-hmm.
3: so you can make different uh, decisions and uh, and see the world world differently mm-hmm. so i think it is uh, also useful sometimes to to see how how people actually talk and, and discuss they very often they they are aware of, of different frames of interpretation
2: mm-hmm.
3: And uh, and seeing how, how flexible it is in in, in vernacular uh, discussions, uh, mm-hmm. it's also maybe inspiring for, for scholarship.
2: Excellent. So it's uh, has been very very interesting to have this conversation with you, Professor Volk. I wonder if you have any concluding remarks or ideas for us at the for us at, for closing the podcast.
3: Well, you represent anthropology of religion and uh, I tried to explain the perspective of folkloristics of, of religion. I think what, what makes our approaches interesting is that uh, there is never a final conclusion mm-hmm. because also the sources that we are making, they are not ready. Mm-hmm. They are always in the, in the making. We keep, keep working with, with people and these vernacular ideas and the practices, they always go go ahead they, they go go beyond mm-hmm. and we we need to, to catch them to to, to understand to, to make to make sense and that's also it means being on the on the way all the all the time being being on the on the move
2: mm-hmm.
3: and uh, well thinking about what kind of concepts we we need and uh, if they're becoming very technical, too, too narrow. They won't be so, so helpful. Mm. So we work always in a, in a dialogue with, uh, with other people who don't uh, carry this uh, mm. academic burden of academic terminology and, uh, and very scientific, rigorous methodology. And I think it's always wonderful to, to learn from them.
2: I think that's a good idea for Rob up the podcast. We thank you again, Professor Bob, for being with us here at the East and we hope to have you again soon.
3: Thank you for this giving me this chance, and I hope to meet you soon at next conferences.
0: Perfect. I'm so appreciative for all of Sydney Castillo's hard work at the EASR. We're really thankful for his ability to get a diverse group of folks to speak to that have never had the chance to appear on uh, the Religious Studies Project podcast or uh, for a lot of uh, folks in the U.S., maybe to have really ever heard of their work, and we're so pleased to be able to broaden and diversify the conversation with scholars that uh, may be unfamiliar to to uh, American audiences in particular. I was really struck by the way that the emphasis on stories in this week's episode reminded me of some of the work that i read as a graduate student about place making and naming uh, by an anthropologist named keith basso who did work uh, on the subaq apache indians in arizona and they have just this wonderful relationship between place names and stories and so every place for them has a story. And part of understanding what that place is, is telling the story about it. And it really changes the way that we think about the world when we start understanding that place names have more power that we can lend to them. Bree, you and I were talking a little bit before we recorded today, and you were saying that there's some similar ideas about place and naming uh, down in Australia. Can you say some about that?
1: Yes. Well, when I was listening to that podcast really struck me when Yula was talking about the idea right at the end of the podcast that, you know, we have to be open-minded as scholars and we have to be, you know, ready to catch things and ready to explore new avenues of understanding. And recently a new sort of avenue of understanding struck me in terms of of places and names. Um, In Australia, whenever we have an event or um, even just a gathering, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we gather, um, the Indigenous Australians. It will always be and it always has been their land. And in the workplace I work, I work on the Gadigal, um, the land of the Gadigal people of Eora. And one day I was speaking to um, somebody who was much more learned in this than I was and I was saying that I was acknowledging the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and this individual came up to me and said, you really should just say the Gadigal people of Eora and I didn't understand and they said, well, when white men landed in this space, in this place, he asked the Indigenous people, what is it called, what is this? And they said Eora, which means here, and so they just said, this is here, this is where we are. And that got translated into Eora Nation, the here nation, as opposed to just Eora. And so for me that was a real moment of, of storytelling and narrative and, and place and religion and culture that is very important to me and something that I think I had to, you know, just work into my everyday, um, you know, place of work because it's about it's about respect it's about giving space to other people's cultures and ownership of, of those places um but shall we talk about what's coming up next week next week Dave I believe it's it's one of yours uh
0: it is next week I have um uh an interview that we're slotting in because uh there's a new book coming out and the publisher Bloomsbury was nice enough to send me a copy an advanced copy of the book uh, to read and so i had a chance to to look through it and it's uh, close to the area that that i work on with charismatic christians in the united states and the new book is uh, by katherine stewart who's a journalist and it's about religious nationalism in the contemporary period in the u.s and it's um political and religious uh kind of combination and it's one of a a a very large number of books that have come out recently uh since the election of trump in 2016 to try to talk about the fusion politically of uh religion and and the political lives of uh, conservative folks in the u.s and so That's What's Coming Next Week uh, is a uh, politically charged interview with Catherine Stewart about religious nationalism.
1: Looking forward to that.
0: Oh, well, thank you. I hope that everybody (laughs) finds it enjoyable. It's certainly going to be very timely uh, and appropriate. And uh, for um, listeners that are interested in that topic, we have uh, a lot of recommendations that we can put on the podcast uh, about other books that that have come out in the last two or three years. The list that I made was t- 20 books long i think it's really a thriving area of publishing right now
1: and also but with t- the democratic primaries coming up as well it's you know it's very very timely with what's it, going it, on over there
0: it, it is we are we are right in the thick of it right at this moment um but until then i think all that's left for for brie and i to say is thanks for thanks for listening, for listening. The RSP is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SC047750. Brought to you by founders and editors-in-chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson, and managing editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Marek Sullivan and Rebecca Barrett-Fox and our Opportunities Digest by Ella Bock. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock with audio editing by Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford, sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop and video editing by Jonathan Tuckett don't forget you can support the project by using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com slash project rs and you can find us on facebook twitter google plus youtube itunes and other portals